Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another George Consortium COVID Law Briefing. Uh, we're here today, again, in collaboration with Public Health Law Watch from Northeastern University, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, and uh, our colleagues around the country who are uh, thinking about issues related to the COVID-19 outbreak and law and policy. I'm Lance Gable. I'm an, an associate professor at Wayne State University Law School, and it's my great pleasure today to uh, welcome our guest, Steph Tai, who's a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin Law school. Our topic today is going to be uh, food systems. Uh, obviously, food systems are a, a core uh, fundamental system within our society that underlies a lot of uh, our essential needs. Uh, having access to food, making sure that food is being produced and distributed in an accessible way are always important issues, even in normal times. And so during the COVID-19 outbreak, we've seen uh, challenges to that system and lots of legal and policy issues arising. And so today, uh, we're hoping to talk about some of those issues and and, uh, delve into some of the things that we can do uh, going forward to make sure that our food system remains stable and people have access to the food that they need. And so I, I'm really glad to have Steph here with us talking about this. So I, I want to start with a really broad question, and uh, that that is, uh, how does our food system work? How, do, how does the structure of the food system uh, possibly, how is that system possibly challenged and vulnerable during an outbreak like our COVID-19 pandemic that we're experiencing right now? Thanks for asking that question, Lance. So it's, it's complicated. It's a complicated question to answer because there are many aspects of the food system. Like if you think of sort of a local supply food system, like a um, direct sale from a farm to a farmer's market, that's a fairly short you know, chain in the food system. You know, farmer brings stuff to a farmer's market, consumers go and they pick stuff up very directly. But most of the food we get is not part of that small chain system. In fact, it's a very large chain system. You've got um, farms, but even before that, you've got the seed producers, um, which are often separate entities. They're selling things um, to the farmers. They're also getting agro, other agrochemical supplies, you know, including things like, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, etc. That's coming from another link. And then they're going through and they're usually shipping it to sort of cooperative or some kind of consolidator to consolidate all the stuff that's growing up, that's grown on the farm. Or if you're thinking about meat, same thing there. Then that tends to go. And that also involves transportation chains, too, because the shipment of that is fairly heavily regulated by the government in terms of food safety. That in turn, in the sort of consolidation you have to move it to the processors, right? And that's another level, right? That's another link in the chain in the food system where, again, there's some transporters involved, there's safety issues involved, and then you've got the food processors um, in there. Sometimes there's additional elements because the processors are usually obtaining things from a lot of different sources. If you're thinking about, say, making a cake mix or something, right? You're getting stuff from um, around the world in terms of spices and things like that. So there's many, many links in the chain. And then there's a sales part of it where you send the sort of, um, things that are being processed to the retailers or to the restaurants. And so that's yet another layer of the um, sort of food system in which there's sort of there's both um, links involved and then there's workers involved. Now, the thing that makes this especially complicated during the pandemic is that these systems have um, generally been structured to be as, quote unquote, economically efficient. And what that means is they're so tightly structured that the timing issues are very um, um, they're very pinpointed. Right. There's in terms of the transportation that I talked about. Right. There's timing in terms of seasonality of harvest, transporting to the sort of um, consolidators, transporting to um, 
transporting to the processors. And that means that whenever anything's interrupted, it interrupts the entire chain. And that's where um, you're seeing all of these supply kind of issues um, in sort of, um, say, supermarkets hit, right? Because we've planned out this supply chain so that it's so um, tightly wound up together. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the the fact that these supply chains can be quite long and that some of them are even um, uh, incorporating ingredients that are from many parts of the world. And one of the things that we've obviously seen during the course of the pandemic is restrictions on traveling between countries and, and even even restrictions on traveling within the United States. And I'm wondering to what extent uh, those travel restrictions or restrictions possibly on trade have affected um, the, the, the functioning of the system during during the last couple of months. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, by the way, I have some um, slides that I think we're going to share via Twitter. We can't, um, we haven't, due to the way that we've got this recording set up, um, there's no way to share them now. But if I were to answer this, and I could show you the slide, I have a slide on just, you know, how many different elements there are to make just tuna fish, right? Um, You think of canned tuna as like something that's fairly simple, but it actually involves a lot of elements, including shipping the elements available to make the actual cans, um, actually doing the processing and all of that. And that's actually an international supply chain, even though it doesn't sound international. What does that mean when you have some kind of interruption in terms of international um, shipments and stuff like that? It means that you, although you might be able to get, say, the tuna, you might not be able to get the materials to make the actual um, canned supplies. And that that can play out in a lot of different ways. Now, um, I haven't seen much in terms of travel restriction um, affecting something, say, like canned tuna. But I have seen travel restrictions affect um, guest workers, right? And so that's another, again, I mentioned earlier in describing the supply chain that there's many links in the chain, and then there's also many workers in every single aspect of the links. And um, in terms of farms, the main thing that we rely upon are the um, guest worker visa workers, which are the H-2A workers. Um, there's a lot of complexities in terms of that because it turns out because of you know restrictions in worker entry, um, that means that uh, many farms right now are facing shortages of workers, right, in terms of being able to harvest their crops, plant the crops, all of that stuff. And so that's one of the difficulties the pandemic raises. Yeah, and I know that there, there was a lot of talk um, a few weeks ago uh, in, in discussions about uh, additional immigration restrictions. The, 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 there's a lot of emphasis put on the fact that essential workers would still be allowed to to cross national borders to continue to work in the United States from from Canada and Mexico. Um, although a lot of the focus focused more on the healthcare side of things rather than on the the food supply side of things. And so I I, I wonder as this situation develops over the next uh, ensuing months uh, whether there'll be more attention paid to the to the food supply side of uh, and and the and the worker needs of of the different industries that are producing our food. So another area that's that's been getting a lot of media attention recently. And, and you mentioned briefly before, uh, is the meat processing industry. And in particular, a lot of the attention comes from the fact that uh, there, there's there's evidence that shows that meat processing facilities are places where we're seeing huge spikes in COVID-19 infections uh, because of the, the nature of the, of the facilities, the proximity of the workers, the fact that they've been continuing to operate while the infection rates have been going up. And so I'm, I'm wondering um, what some of the legal issues are in the context of that industry in particular, uh, we, we, we've seen the, the president 
taking steps to try to encourage or, or even force the industry to keep operating uh, through the Defense Production Act. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering um, what kinds of uh, legal and policy issues are, are coming up specifically in that industry. One of the things I want to sort of start off by clarifying is that a lot of the news coverage of the Defense Production Act has been kind of mischaracterizing what the Defense Production Act does. It was originally designed in response to the Korean War to allow the president to require businesses to accept and prioritize contracts for materials deemed necessary for national defense. And so they're deeming meat is, I guess, necessary for national defense. There's some pushback on that. I have a colleague, um, Andrew Freeman, who's written an article about how, you know, meat is not necessarily essential. There's many other foods around. But setting that aside, um, what the law does is it allows the president to designate these materials to prohibit it from hoarding and price gouging. So what it really does is it provides some kind of protection from antitrust suits for production under these circumstances versus the broader range of liability waivers that were invoked by the um, president in signing that executive order, but not actually contained um, in the executive order or the Defense Production Act. So I want to say that it doesn't actually protect meat facilities from any kind of liability. Um, however, a lot of states are raising potential statutory protections for meat packing facilities um, from state liability, um, sort of tort way, um, from state torts. And for, to that extent, um, there might end up being um, some kind of liability protection um, for these facilities. Uh, would that liability protection be against protection against lawsuits from the workers who are infected while working or or more broadly related to the products as well? From what I've seen, it's mostly related to um, the workers, which is really quite terrible for the workers, right? Um, in terms of whether they're able to sort of raise lawsuits for negligence in terms of protecting them from this. So um, what I've seen is it's mostly liability waivers for worker kind of lawsuits. What are some of the other protections that would be in place to uh, protect workers against the kinds of uh, exposures that they might face in, in this current situation? Some smaller meat processors have adopted ways to actually protect their workers. Um, and part of that is because their facilities are designed in ways that the workers can actually space themselves out versus having to work in sort of close quarters the way that many of the sort of more industrial facilities are structured. Um, so they've been spacing um, workers out and they've also been timing shifts right? So that there are fewer workers in there. Now, some of the, I think, larger meat processors could do that too, but I haven't seen enough flexibility in their chains to really allow for that. That's what some of the sort of smaller scale producers are doing. And they're also providing more PPEs to people too. Okay. So an another topic that I wanted to make sure we covered in our talk today uh, relates to food safety. And, you know, I, it, 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 it's, it's my impression that our our infrastructure for ensuring food safety is is not necessarily very robust, even in, in normal times. And um, I, I would imagine that, especially under under our current conditions, uh, there will be less initiative to enforce the, the, the normal inspection kinds of protocols and food safety measures that are in place. But I, I'm, I'm wondering how the, the COVID pandemic has affected food safety oversight and just uh, what, what people who are purchasing food can expect in terms of the safety of their food. Well, I want to split this up in terms of oversight, because there's first the sort of actual, um, I guess, government oversight, which, as you mentioned, is not quite complete. Um, and then there's actually the sort of private governance kind of oversight, because it turns out that whenever there's like some kind of major outbreak, um, for instance, in spinach or something, it's not just like one single brand of spinach that gets affected. Nobody wants spinach all of a sudden. Right. And so they have some incentives um, built in for sort of private reasons to have that. So I'll, I'll talk about those in two separate parts. With respect to sort of governmental food safety inspections, the FDA has um, already issued something saying they're doing less testing um, because they don't want their ex inspectors exposed to stuff. The U.S 
USDA, however, is claiming that they're maintaining the same degree of testing. And what that means in terms of consumers directing their health concerns, if they're worried about less government inspections, is you have to look at the jurisdictional split of these two agencies. USDA is really um, directed towards meats and all of that other stuff, while the FDA manages processed foods, shelled eggs, raw produce, dairies, and stuff like that. And so, you know, if you want to sort of say, okay, well, I'm worried about different government agencies doing different degrees of inspection, you have to look at what they cover. The second part, right, is the private part of this. And they still have uh, many sort of major food processors still have the sort of private incentive to, you know, protect both their branding and themselves from food safety lawsuits. Um, So I think that that part, you know, while maybe getting lax, I I think they're still aware of those food safety concerns. There's so many things happening related to food right now. And and one of the other issues that I think is really urgent to to address is just overall access to food because of the the mass unemployment that's that's occurred due to the pandemic and because so many people are are losing access to their, their normal source of income obviously that affects people's ability to buy um, essential products like food uh, we've seen huge expansions in in some operations to to try to uh, provide food assistance and I know a lot, a lot of uh, a lot of state and local governments are looking at some of those issues but what are some of the issues going on right now in terms of access to food and and ways that access to food might be limited or might be expanded uh, through different kinds of initiatives? So food access is limited partly by just, you know, um, ability to shop for food and sort of risks of exposure coming from that. Um, I know that there's a lot of um, store grocery stores that are offering delivery kind of services, but the wait time can be really large um, to get access to those kind of things. And so there's a large wait list for that. Um, there's actually some special um, concerns um, for those who are disabled and unable to sometimes access those apps and stuff like that. Um, and the same thing, do, um, too, with folks who are living in relative food deserts where they don't have access to these sort of large-scale food distribution systems. Um, That said, you also asked about what different layers of government are doing about this, and the USDA did announce a coronavirus food assistance program, is what they're calling it, um, to use their funds to purchase like $3 billion in fresh vegetables and stuff like that, um, and distribute them to different states. And so far, Maryland's um, disaster household distribution program has applied for some of that. Uh, Different states are doing that as well, Um, but this is just one example of a way that a state is partnering with the federal government um, to provide additional access. And Maryland's program works by actually creating a digital mapping system that can be accessible to everyone to figure out where they can get these sort of food distribution supplies um, and so that there is some kind of way to address the food desert um, issue that is available for many low-income communities. Yeah, I I know another issue that's come up in terms of access uh, relates to access to food through the school system. And, you know, many children receive their meals through the schools. And, and since schools have been uh, mostly suspended, certainly for in-person um, attendance for, for the rest of the year, uh, that also might affect uh, children's access to it. Yeah. And many states, I don't know if all the states are doing um, pickups available still with the lunches that would have been otherwise distributed through schools. So um, that's one area where states can step up and still provide access to families whose kids need food. So, so I want to go back big picture again and sort of think about what what this experience and and you know obviously we're we're still only at the early stages of this pandemic. It's going to continue to affect our lives substantially for for the next uh, couple of years. And you know how do how do you 
you think the the disruptions and the changes that have gone on will ultimately affect the food system? Um, are there are there additional either legal or policy initiatives that we should be thinking about now to not only keep the food system operating in the way that we want it to, but to sort of look ahead and, and address the kinds of challenges we might face in the future as we continue to adapt to this new reality that we're in? I think that one thing that I hope this pandemic makes the industry realize is that the need for flexibility is quite great. That's something that people have talked about for years. For instance, after the Fukushima um, nuclear disaster, a lot of seafood supply chains were disrupted. And those were, you know, and there's been a number of them as a result of tsunamis and things like that. And um, the industry has responded somewhat, but not in quite as robust a manner as I think many people in the sort of supply chain um, management world would have hoped. And I hope that that's one thing that at least for large scale kind of um, food processors, um, they'll try to take into account. That said, I think that hopefully consumers will realize that sort of these smaller chain kind of um, smaller linked kind of supply chains, such as sort of direct sales and stuff like that, can actually um, help with navigating through um, situations like these. For example, a lot of farms that were selling foods directly to restaurants have now developed ways to ship directly to consumers. And maybe familiarity with that will help consumers realize that we don't need to have this kind of large linkage chain connection and we can have these shorter supply chains that are often more adaptable than the long supply chains. It's fascinating to see how how people have been uh, adapting to to these circumstances. And obviously, you know, a related issue is going to be just um, the, the fact that so many businesses, especially some of those smaller operations, whether they be small farms or restaurants or other other food providers it, it, at different at different parts of that supply chain, whether they're able to survive economically throughout this time and, and how many of them are still in place afterward. And, and we might have to rebuild some of that capacity as well, I would guess. Yeah, we might have to. And I think that different municipalities are planning for that. For instance, the um, Madison Food Policy Council, which advises um, the mayor on food policy issues, has been recommending that local food resources be prioritized and that we create some kind of infrastructure um, beforehand to try to sort of keep those industries alive and maybe sort of help promote them after the pandemic is over. We are almost out of time. And so I, I guess I just wanted to wrap up by asking you if, if there are any other thoughts, you know, final recommendations, ideas, things that we should be looking at as we go forward. I think one thing, and this is a much nerdier thing, but I think insurance issues are going to play out a lot, especially for restaurants, but also for many other kind of food processing kind of businesses in terms of whether or not it counts as a sort of business interruption and whether or not they can claim money from their insurance companies as a result of that. I think that the ability to obtain business interruption insurance um, money will be critical in terms of allowing these sort of small industries to survive. Thank you. I, I want to thank Steph Tai again for being our guest today. Uh, she's a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin Law School, expert in food system policy and law and environmental law and administrative law and many other things. So you should check out her work. We'll post some of it online uh, at, at our different uh, links. Um, all of these shows are archived at the Public Health Law Watch uh, website, as well as uh, being broadcast on the the Week in Health Law podcast. So, you know, please visit both of those sites as well to find this recording and also uh, all of our other broadcasts. And uh, also want to acknowledge uh, that these COVID-19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kalik and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Stay safe, wash your hands, stay home.